Well, as, as simply one more dimension church family of our worship of God this morning, we've, we've worshiped in song, we've worshiped as we've gathered around the, the Lord's table together, we've, we've worshiped as we gladly give of what he has given to us and give it back to him, we've worshiped as we hugged and shook hands and greeted one another in the name of the Lord. And so this morning, one more way that we get to worship the Lord is through his word as the Holy Spirit has given it to us. And so I would like to invite you to join me in the Gospel of Mark this morning in the New Testament. If you'll take your Bible or your iPad or phone or whatever you're using and let's, uh, let's make our way to Mark chapter 12 together, church. If you need a Bible today, you got out of the house without one and you'd like to have a Bible to hold in your hands, uh, just keep your hand in the air for a short moment and Charlie will share a copy of God's Word with you. So the Gospel of Mark, it's right after Matthew, so it's the second book in the New Testament, just before Luke, chapter 12 today. And if you are a regular here at IBC, you know that we have been running hard in our study series in First Peter, and we've been doing that for about six weeks now. Today, we were going to take a break. That was the plan. We would take a break from Peter and take advantage of the turning leaf celebration to consider for just a few moments together what what love looks like within a church family. Since we were going to be gathering together and sharing church life, it seemed like a great way to go. But since our celebration has been postponed for a week by the rain, we're going to save the message that we were going to talk about today. We're going to save that, Lord willing, for next week. One of the passages that we would have been looking at, though, this morning and sharing together, had it not rained, was going to be out of Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 34, right where your Bible is open right now. So since we were already going to take this break from Peter, I just felt the nudging of the Holy Spirit as the weather became clear and we knew we weren't going to be able to make the celebration this Sunday, I just felt the Holy Spirit nudging my heart and saying, you know, Tim, there's, there's more here in Mark 12 than you are going to be able to get to in one morning. Anyway, so I'm going to give you two mornings to share the truth of God's word as it relates to Mark 12. So church family, here we are, and Lord willing, we will be here again uh, as part of our time together next week. This morning, the greatest commandments, love God and love each other, love your neighbor. Now, before we would read these verses, just a little bit of context for you, because I'm dropping you into a place that you had no idea we were going to be in. So it wouldn't be fair not to at least paint a little bit of a backdrop. Mark, in his narrative of Jesus' earthly life and ministry, has brought his readers by the time we get to chapter 12 he's brought them to the place in Jesus life where he is just a few days away from the cross it is actually Tuesday morning of passion week Passover week Uh, so Jesus is at the great temple in Jerusalem on a Tuesday morning and he'll be paying our sin debt on the cross three days later on a Friday so that's the time frame here's the rest of the background In the verses leading up to where we're at this morning, the religious leaders are in view and they hate Jesus with a passion. 
They hate him, literally hate him, and they are trying to trap him with cleverly constructed questions. And so they've been putting a series of questions to Jesus uh, on this Tuesday morning. And they hope that Jesus will take the bait and, and then he'll say something that they can use against him and they'll arrest him for what he says and then ultimately they can kill him. Of course, that's never going to happen because they're trying to trap God. And so that's just not going to happen. With a razor-sharp precision and unmatched skill that's amazing to read, if we had the opportunity to do that, Jesus turns every one of these traps by these religious leaders back on his trap setters. Publicly, he humiliates them before the crowds that are gathered at the temple during Passover week. And now these religious leaders, they, they hate Jesus more than ever and can't wait for a chance to see him dead. So that's the climate, the atmosphere in this moment. And it is in this moment that out from among the religious leaders, there steps a lawyer, uh, a scribe. Matthew refers to him as a Pharisee. And he's a man who knows the Old Testament scriptures like the back of his hand. And we pick up the story at verse 28 of chapter 12. Follow along, allow me to read for us. And one of the scribes came up and heard heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, he asked Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all of the heart and with all of the understanding, with all of the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. And we'll stop right there. Now, my guess is that all of, the, of all of the words that Jesus speaks in the scriptures, these are among the best known words to many of us. And the reason for that is because when the Son of God says, this is it, there is nothing more important than this. Well, we tend to tuck those kind of things away. And you probably have done that. Loving God and loving others are the two most important commands from heaven to you and me. So getting a better handle on what these commands mean for you and me, well, that's, that's, that's worth our time today. That will be time well spent. However, first, fast forward through time with me from this moment here on a Tuesday morning with Jesus in Jerusalem, fast forward to the year 1703 in England. 
That was the year that John Wesley was born, the 15th child, yes, 15th child of Samuel Wesley, who was a pastor, and his wife, Susanna. Now, there are relatively few people of whom it can be said that their arrival on the scene changes the course of history, but we can say that of John Wesley. In fact, more accurately, we should say that his coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ changes history. Had it not been for Wesley's conversion and the spiritual revival that he then spearheaded in England with the resulting cultural and social changes that followed, historians believe that England would probably have undergone uh, the same kind of revolution that the French experienced in their country. And that would have radically altered the world and the landscape of the world as you and I know it today, if in fact that had happened. And beyond all of that, his impact would be felt across the ocean in a new country called America, where his influence would shape the social, political, and spiritual fabric of the land in this soon-to-be-born nation. His amazing mother, Susanna, greatly influenced his life, steering him in a spiritual direction. Intellectually gifted, he was a double professor at Oxford at the age of 23, professor of of Greek and logic by the time he was 23. He was ordained to the pastor within the Church of England four years later. Only uh, the interesting thing about Wesley is that though he was an ordained pastor, he of his own admission said that he did not know Jesus in a saving way. He was not a saved man. At this time, he was immersed in a works-based approach to God. You do everything that you humanly can to be holy, to be good, and God will accept you. Jesus is just kind of thrown in as an accessory to your salvation, but it's really up to you. And so he was part of a group known as the Holy Club at Oxford. And these were men who would meet together for prayer. They would study the Greek New Testament in the original language. And and they would do devotional exercises. And he spent at least an hour every day in prayer, took communion every week, dedicated himself to overcoming every sin that he could, could be aware of in his life. He fasted twice a week. He visited the prisons. He assisted the poor and the sick. And by doing all of this, He believed himself to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus, and going to heaven. In 1735, he went to America to be a missionary to the Indians who were living in the state of, now it is the state of Georgia, and it was a colossal disaster for Wesley. He utterly failed as a missionary. He almost died of disease. He's on board a ship returning back to England. He's beaten. He's discouraged. And on board the ship, he meets some German Christians, Moravian Christians, whose simple faith had an incredible impact on him. He gets back to England and he writes, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? His experience revealed to him that something was not right. 
that his efforts were in some way a misguided, self-focused approach to God. He didn't know what to do with all of that, but he knew something wasn't right. He seeks out one of these German Christian leaders, and they have numerous talks. And then on the morning of May the 24th, 1738, something happens that changes Wesley's life forever. He says that he just opened his Bible randomly. Now, church family, do you ever do that? In your quiet time, you just take your Bible and you open it randomly, only to discover that when you do, you fall right on a page and a place that speaks exactly to the issue that you're dealing with. Has that ever happened to you? Well, that's what happens to him. He looks down on the page and his eyes fall on the words of Mark chapter 12, verse 34. You are not far from the kingdom of God. Wesley said that the words were like a, a confirmation that he was on the right course, but that he had not gone far enough yet in in his pursuit of God, his understanding of God. At one point, Wesley says, and I quote him, I was clearly convinced of my unbelief, of my lack of that faith that is in Jesus alone, whereby we are saved. I did not know God. Before the day ends, he embraced fully for himself the true gospel. He understood that God in the person of of Jesus had paid his sin debt for him on the cross and proved that he had done that by rising from the dead. He crossed over that invisible line from from spiritual death to spiritual life by faith in Jesus. He stepped into the kingdom of God on this day, and he knew it. This text was to become Wesley's life verse from this point on, a continual reminder, he said, of how close and how far he had been from heaven for the first 35 years of his life. You are not far from the kingdom of God. Now, the parallels between John Wesley and the lawyer standing before Jesus are amazingly similar. This lawyer is a clergyman, just like Wesley, a Pharisee, a religious leader over the nation of Israel. He's a brilliant scholar like Wesley. He knows his Old Testament inside and out like Wesley. Like Wesley, he knows about God, but he doesn't truly know the God of whom he speaks. And like Wesley, he hopes to win God's approval by performance and and good works rather than by authentically loving God and accepting his grace through faith in Jesus. Like Wesley, this man desires to, to serve God without truly knowing God. And to both Wesley and this man, Jesus says the same thing. You are not far from the kingdom of God. Amazingly similar, though they are separated by 1,700 years. And maybe not that dissimilar from some people that you might know. Working hard to earn God's approval. Believing that they're going to heaven by good deeds, good works. Not realizing that they're near to heaven 
but they're not there. Or, or maybe someone in this room right now is very much like John Wesley was or this lawyer, believing salvation is earned, that it's a reward for being good. This special moment unfolds as this law teacher watches in stunned amazement at how brilliantly and with what precision and skill Jesus handles the scriptures when confronted by these religious leaders who pose some really gnarly, potentially deadly questions. And Jesus just handles it so skillfully. Being a Pharisee himself, Jesus is definitely a threat to this lawyer and to his belief system. However, and I really can't prove this, but I just get the feeling from Mark that inwardly this man, this lawyer, was strangely drawn to Jesus and maybe subconsciously was even applauding him for the good answers that Jesus gave to those earlier interrogations. Mark actually mentions this in verse 28. This man was impressed. Even an enemy can find respect for an opponent that he thinks is worthy, right? And this man thought Jesus was was definitely a worthy opponent. And so it's almost as if he impulsively lets go a question that is his own and that has lain just beneath the surface of his life, maybe for a long time. Almost as if he's compelled to ask it, not to try and trap Jesus, but simply because he wants to know the answer to the question. A question that has plagued and troubled him and and has had no clear resolution. A question that comes straight out of his own field of expertise. It's almost as if he cannot not ask this question. And what is the question? Which commandment, Jesus, is the most important of all? Verse 28. Which one, Jesus? You see, this Jewish law expert had inherited from the religious leaders who had gone before him down through the centuries of Israel a belief system composed of 613 rules. And you'll notice that there on your note page. You do these 613 rules and and you get to live with God forever. That was the Pharisees' belief. That was the teaching of the day. Do the rules. A relationship with God rooted in faith and deep love that, that you would know about today. Well, that, that wasn't in play. And so your relationship was, was shaped by, with God was shaped by your behavior. It really wasn't anything to do with love or faith. Keep the rules. And there were 613 rules because, well, that's how many separate letters there were in the original Ten Commandments that God gave to Israel. Somebody went up and counted them, 613, so that's how many rules there were going to be. And most of the 613 were not even from God. They were man-made rules, ridiculous, nitpicky, ritual kinds of rules. 248 were affirmative commands, things that you should do. And 365 were negative commands, things not to do, one for each day of the year. 613. 
And then these commands, they were, they were divided up into binding and non-binding ones. And, and they were ranked in terms of whether they were a weighty command or a, a less weighty command. And the law experts just constantly debated all of this. This was this guy's job to debate and to tear apart. And this was his life work. Live the law and try to distill it down to its purest essence, its central pillar, and earn God's smile of approval. Keep the rules. So when he sees Jesus brilliantly take on his opponents, he can't help it. Jesus, the most important law of all, what, what is it? What is it? And I think he genuinely wanted to know this. Well, Jesus doesn't hesitate for an instant. He quotes two Old Testament passages, one from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and the other from Leviticus 19. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. That's Deuteronomy 6. The second is love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19.18. Now, church family, there are times in my teaching, in my preaching, when I feel like I have a special gift for being able to take the simple and make it complex. It's a gift. Jesus does not have this gift. Jesus knew how to take the complex and make it really simple. And never is that more evident than it is right here, reducing 613 rules and commands down to two and really down to just one that has two parts. The first part of Jesus' answer to the lawyer quotes what is known as the Shema. Everyone, and I do mean everyone present this day here in Mark 12, knew the Shema. The Shema. Shema is the Hebrew word for hear or listen. And so this passage out of Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 takes its name from the very first word in the passage. Hear, O Israel. From long before Jesus' time up to today, this is, the, this is the passage that opens every Jewish synagogue worship service, the Shema. Every pious Jew in Jesus' day quoted the Shema in the morning and then as the last thing before they went to bed in the evening. Everybody knew it. The most pious Pharisees would, would tie little leather boxes either on their forehead or on their forearm called a phylactery and they would put verses in those boxes what verses do you suppose went in the box the shema was going to be in the box every jewish home had a a little niche cut into the door front near the the front of the door of their homes called a mezuzah and guess what scripture would be in that box the shema the shema in the shema god was saying love me Love me with your whole being, all that you are. No part of you held back, no aspect of your life where I am not first and foremost and you are deeply in love with me 
because of who I am. The non-physical part of you loving me. Your, your thoughts, your will, your emotions, your physical self loving me. Your hands, your feet, your eyes, your ears, your mouth, all of you, your whole body loving me as you live out your life. And included in that was everything that you possessed materially as well. Love me with all of you, God says. And then and Jesus says this, this is the preeminent command. To say it another way, it doesn't take a special person to be a lover of God, but it does take all of a person to love God rightly. That's the Shema. And so then the second half of Jesus' answer, the, the love your neighbor part, it was also familiar to this crowd. It was not as weighty to them as the Shema was, but it was definitely familiar. What Jesus does here, though, that is unique is that he fuses these two scriptural commands together and he makes them one. He, he binds them together in an inseparable way. And that had never been done before. Other rabbis and scribes had spoken of loving God or of loving people, but this was fresh and it was taken right out of the writings of Moses. And so to a a Jew hearing Jesus say this, I mean, you couldn't get more authoritative than this. This was the words of God as Moses had recorded them. The beauty and genius of Jesus' answer to the lawyer is really seen, though, when we break down his answer as we do there on your note page, that lawyer picks up on on what Jesus is saying. He's not stupid. He really does get it. The first thing Jesus did so masterfully was to, to summarize all 10 of the Bible's commands into two verses. He takes the 10 commandments out of Exodus 20 and he compresses them down into two verses. He takes the first four commands of God there Uh, which focus on our relationship with God. And and he uses the Shema out of Deuteronomy to to condense all of that down. Love God with your whole being. And then he covers the remaining six commands that are are people-focused commands, honoring your parents, not murdering, not coveting, protecting your marriage and all of that. And he uses Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself, to cover those commands All of Scripture, all of the law, every word of the Old and for us the New Testament summed up in a few dozen words. And the lawyer gets it. Second, by melting these two commands together into one essentially all-encompassing command, Jesus shows that, that love for God and love for people really cannot be compartmentalized. You can't break them out. And separate them into two different things and do one and and not do the other. They go together. In fact, on this day in Mark 12, John, one of Jesus' disciples, is there. He hears the words of Jesus. And later on, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, he, he, he brings this moment back as he writes the epistle of 1 John, chapter 4, verses 20 and 21. Look at what John writes. He heard Jesus on this day. If anyone says, I love God and and yet hates his brother, he is a what, church family? 
It's a liar. He's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, from Jesus. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. John was saying Jesus gave us this command. Also, we know from Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10 that for Jesus, a neighbor wasn't just a fellow Jew or your good friend or maybe a family member. Your neighbor was anyone. It could be anyone. Anyone who you knew had a need and whose need you had some ability to meet. If you knew about the need and you could meet the need in some way, that person was your neighbor. And and Jesus powerfully presented that through the parable of the Good Samaritan. And with this answer, Jesus struck at the heart of of sinful prejudice and, and favoritism that was so rampant in his day. Jews only helped Jews. You never helped a Gentile. That was no, you just didn't do that. And Jesus is calling that out. And just like that same prejudice and favoritism is alive in our day as well. Who is our neighbor? Anyone who has a need, whose need I know about and have some ability to meet. That's my neighbor. And the lawyer gets it. And then last there, when when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, he was simply bringing out into the open what we all know. And that is, that, that we are naturally bent to take care of ourselves, aren't we? <laughs> it just is part of our sin nature to take care of ourselves. And so Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. And so it kind of becomes a convicting standard. Don't treat others with less care than you would care for yourself. That's a guiding principle. Well, this was powerful stuff, and the lawyer knew that. He knew this was truth. No one could say, Jesus, you're wrong. I challenge you. It was airtight. And depending on how much this lawyer might have known about Jesus before this Tuesday morning here in in Mark 12, he might even have been aware that Jesus was actually living out what he was teaching. He was actually doing it, loving God, and loving others as he loved himself. Many had already been drawn to Jesus because this was Jesus. This is who he was. He would prove beyond all measure on Friday just how much he loved God and how much he loved people. He would go to the cross three days from now. So Jesus answers the lawyer's question honestly and biblically which is exactly how you and I should respond to people in our lives, right? We answer them honestly. We answer them biblically. But now flip your study page over, church, and, and, and let's take a look at how the lawyer answers Jesus. Jesus has answered the lawyer. Now let's look at how the lawyer answers Jesus. Verse 32. You are right, teacher. You are right. Love God, love others. You are right, teacher. These are the first words that he speaks. In fact, that's how it's rendered in my ESV Bible. You are right, teacher. But did you know what the lawyer actually said on this day? 
literally said? He said this, beautifully, teacher, of a truth you speak. Beautifully, teacher, of a truth you speak. A beautiful answer you have given, Jesus. It's the only time in Mark's gospel that a member of the Jewish religious leadership and a Pharisee, no less, ever was in agreement with Jesus. It's the only time. And for him to say this here in the temple of all places, in front of such a large crowd, in front of his fellow Pharisees, man, you got to know this was bold. What you said is beautiful, Jesus. That was daring. That was a daring statement. But not nearly as bold and daring as what he says next. Beautiful answer, Jesus. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other and to love him with all of your heart and with all of your understanding, with all of your strength, and, and to love one's neighbor as, your, as oneself. And then get this, is much more than whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. It's much more than doing rules. That's what he says. Did he really say that? This Pharisee? Yeah, he really did. Clearly, this law expert is an intelligent man with a, with a quick mind, and instantly he is able to grapple with the implications of Jesus' two-part, all-important law of love. He understood that Jesus' one law was, was more than an entire religious system of 613 rules. It was something spiritual. It was something personal. It was something of the heart. It wasn't performance. It wasn't rules keeping based. And the lawyer gets it. This is something that's going on in your heart. He realized that dutiful rule keeping did not equal a relationship with God. A person can do all of the right things, but with a heart that is totally disconnected and infected with pride. I'm going to do it. I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to do the right things and I'm going to win my place in heaven. That was the mindset. The rules become the God. They become the focus rather than than God being God and loving him because he's God. He gets it. And he knows from what Jesus has said that it's going to take more than ceremonies and animal sacrifices to deal with sin in a person's life. The ancient historian Josephus records that 250,000 lambs were sacrificed at Passover in A.D. 65. 250,000. That's a lot of blood. That's a lot of death. And That's a lot of innocent substitution for sinners according to the Old Testament requirement. But those sacrifices can't cleanse a sinful heart. Only a loving, gracious God can can do that. And the lawyer gets it. He gets it. Did, did, did did, Did Jesus like the lawyer's response? Was he pleased with the response of the lawyer? Well, you bet he was. He he was. I would love to have seen Jesus' face at this moment when the lawyer responded the way that he did. 
He had to have been smiling. He was pleased. You, Jesus says, are not far from the kingdom of God. Jesus' reply here is is hope-filled. It is tantalizing, but it's purposely open-ended as well. How this story ultimately plays itself out will depend on what the lawyer does with the words of Jesus. You are not far. You are near to the kingdom of heaven. You are near. You're not far. You can almost hear the longing, the the hunger in Jesus' voice to see a a lost sheep of, of the house of Israel come to saving faith. Jesus says, you're almost there. Come, a little bit more. Why was the man not far? Why was he not far? Well, he was not far because perhaps for the first time in his life, he was thinking for himself and not as a Pharisee. He's not far. Jesus complimented him by saying that he had answered wisely. And I agree with whoever it was who said, if someone is willing to think deeply, they will eventually think spiritually. You agree with that? I think that's true. If you think deeply for long enough, you will eventually go in a spiritual direction. Anyone who gets near the kingdom has taken the time to think about eternal things. And so Jesus was pleased. He's not far because he was honest, willing to break ranks for the sake of the truth. The peer pressure that this Pharisee would have felt would have been tremendous. He had always sided with tradition. He had always sided with with his fellow Pharisees, his friends. He had never once not towed the party line. He was honest, though, here in this moment, and he was courageous. He would have felt the angry stares of his peers as he openly agrees with Jesus. And he says, you know, you're right, Jesus. 10,000 sacrifices are not as important as loving God from the heart. You are right. Pharisees didn't talk like that. They certainly didn't talk like that in public and they certainly didn't talk like that in the temple where the Pharisees made lots of money selling sacrificial animals to worshipers. Caring more about what others think than what God thinks has led to an eternity without God for many, many sinners. But this guy is honest. Jesus was pleased. And he was not far from the kingdom because he understood that a changed heart, not conformity to religious tradition, is what God really wants. He wants a transformed heart. For this honest and thinking Pharisee, what did ceremonially washing bowls and cups have to do with God? What did counting your steps on the Sabbath day to make sure you didn't go over the right number, what did that have to do with God? And, 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 and what, what about tithing your spices in your wife's spice rack? What does that have to do with God? What did any of that have to do with heaven or God or anything else? Jesus was right. 
Heaven is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of loving God and loving the things that God loves. And since God loves people, heaven has to do with loving others also. And Jesus was pleased. His words, you are not far from the kingdom of God. They were a wonderful compliment to this man. But let's not miss this church. They were also a sober warning to him. Jesus said, you are not far, but you are not what? You're not in. You're not in either. You're not far, but you are not in. And so his words, Jesus' words are disturbing because they imply that it is possible to be within sight of heaven and still go to hell. That's what they say. That's what those words imply. John Wesley, we go back to him for a second. He was a thinking man, brilliant, intelligent, honest, courageous, dutiful, devoted, a rule keeper's rule keeper. Everything he did, he did for God, trying to earn his way to heaven. So near, yet so far. Within sight of heaven, and yet hell bound. And then came that day in 1738 when with sovereign randomness he opens his Bible to Mark chapter 12 and finds verse 34 and he gets it. He was near to the kingdom of God but not in. And he knew it. Something had to change. Humility had to displace the pride in his life. Grace had to displace this this theology of good works. Love had to displace performance. Repentance had to replace performance. God's love for him expressed in Jesus' death on the cross for his sin and his love for this God and for his son must replace his devotion to rules and duty as a way of being saved. And Wesley knew it. It was not about works. It was not about performance. It was about simple faith, loving God, loving Jesus, and loving others because God loved them too. Wesley writes of his salvation moment, On the night of May 24th, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ and in Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. And from then on, for Wesley, everything changed. Now he would live in the love of God for him and he would love God back. And he would love those whom Jesus died for because Jesus loved them. Wesley went on to be used of God to, as I said, spark this revival in England and America that would radically change the course of history. Did the lawyer that was so near ever come to the place that John Wesley did? That so many of you have come to in your life? Did the lawyer get to that place? We don't know. Scriptures are silent on that. I I would love to think that he did. I, I would really consider it an honor and a joy to meet him one day 
in the kingdom. Because he was no longer near to it, he was in it through faith in Jesus. I would love for that opportunity. But the far more important question in this moment for us is, are you, am I, are we in the kingdom? Or are we only near to the kingdom? That's the question. That's the real question. If you were to say, well, I I, I don't know. I, I don't know if I'm in or if I'm near then I would say, based on what we've just just been exploring here, then it's time for you to think for yourself. To be honest with God about the sin that is in your life. To stop thinking that you could ever earn your way into God's heart by trying to be good. It's time to ask Jesus to be your one and only Savior. It's time to to love the God who who loved you first and went all the way to the cross to demonstrate that love. It's time to love the one who died for you and then reflect that love in your love and care for those around you. It's time. It's time. Are you possibly near the kingdom of God in this moment, but you are not in A single step can make all the difference in eternity. When someone stands outside the doorway of an airplane, one step into the airplane, and they are on their way to a brand new destination. Just one step. No step, and they stay right where they are. Near, but not in. And they remain where they are, and they never know what might have been. Just one step. It's the same way in this moment. One step of faith in the direction of Jesus can change your eternity. It will change your eternity. Which is why the Holy Spirit says out of Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, today, not tomorrow, not a week from now, because you don't know if you even get to have that. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Let's pray together, church. Well, you have spoken straight up with us today, Heavenly Father, as you always do. Your word never, never cuts corners and it never, it never softens the truth. It, it is your truth. How we thank you for your grace in our lives that we can ask ask and answer this question. Are we near the kingdom or are we in? We can know. We can know this truth because you have made it known to us through, through Jesus. Thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for going to the cross, bearing our sin debt, and giving us life. Thank you for enabling us to cross over from an eternity without you to an eternity with you, never again having to wonder about this question, am I near to the kingdom or or in? And if this morning perhaps you are here at IBC and, and you don't know where you stand, you don't know where you are with God, man, today's the day. Answer this question. 
determine who Jesus is going to be in your life? A historical figure? A great teacher from the past? Or is he God who died for you? Don't be near the kingdom. Be in it. And if we can help you in that journey, please let us know how we could do that. Just pull someone aside that you might know here. They will be glad to to show you more of who, who Jesus is and what it means to be in him. We thank you, Lord, for loving us first. And because you love us, it is our heart's desire to love you back. Love you and love, love those that you love. And all God's people said, amen and amen.